Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. You know what, Johnny? What's that? For some reason, this guest that we're having on, his name, sounds nothing like what I'm thinking. But <laughs> for some reason, when I hear the name, I think Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know what it is. I get that. I don't know. I, I, I Yeah, I guess. It's I mean, not, His looks- name sounds like a famous poet. Uh, I get you. You know what I mean? I get you. Yeah. But why do people, even though this guy is, we're not saying three names with this guy. It's just two. It's just the normal two. <laughs> right. But why is <laughs> like poets like Edgar Rice Burroughs, Edgar Allan Poe, and serial killers, John Wayne John Gacy. John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> well, weird. <laughs> why do they all the have three one? names? What's up with the fucking three <laughs> names? Like we all have three names. Well, not all of us, but a lot of people have three names, like a first, middle, and and last. Yeah. But why is when like someone becomes famous, all of a sudden you say they're f- all three names? I don't know, but it's funny. Well, welcome back. I don't know. Where's this coming from? Welcome back there, partner. Woo! Welcome back. <laughs> Spoiler country. Coming out at you right now. I'm <laughs> Kenny Cregan. That's Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Richard Starkings, isn't it? It's the Western edition today. I but. know. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, Richard Stark's man comes on, talks with Casey. Uh, he is the creator of Elephant Men, which is a runaway hit underground comic. Not only underground, I mean, it's an indie book. Yeah. Uh, it's, dude, it was, it has. Well, when you say underground, really, you I, mean indie. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's a, it had a ton of issues that come out. I mean, really, really, really highly uh, um, regarded. I have not personally read it, but I have everybody I know who's read it has told me nothing that about good things about it, and that I have to read it. So well, it's on my list of things is, to read. Is Elephant Men number one? I believe came out. Oh man, do a quick Google search. I'm not. Can you look for when it came out? I, I'm yep, thinking. Right I want to say 2017. Uh, looks like uh, issue one was released in 2006. Oh, 2006. Yeah. Well, this just blows my whole thing out of the water because I just remember. When we were in San Diego Comic Con and we were talking with, uh, when we went to the Diamond Luncheon, yeah, we were talking yeah. to a, I don't remember where they're at. We were talking to somebody who owns a comic book store, right? Somewhere in the Midwest, we'll just say that somewhere in the Midwest, and they were talking about Elephant Men, the fact that they couldn't get it in their store, right, right. And we were like, oh, and and then you just could not find a copy. At the time, we couldn't find it anywhere, which is funny because you're at a comic book convention, right? I remember that too, and they, I remember there. I remember there was actually there, were, there was a promo issue that was out at one of the shows we went to. Maybe that's what it um, was. Yeah, and there's uh, 
there's 80 issues in that series that ran from 06 until February of 2018. So it was, I mean, for any indie book to go 80 issues, that's a good feat, man. 80 issues is nothing to sneeze at. No, not at all. That's awesome. Well, this is going to be exciting. So our own man on the street. We haven't said this man in a while, street. dude. Our own man on the street, Casey Tickle Monster Allen. <laughs> Got to sit down with Richard Starkings and have a wonderful interview. Yeah. So uh, what do you say we uh, stop yapping here and go and listen to that? Let's stop yapping, get off poles in the water, and let's get going. <laughs> <laughs> everybody welcome again to another episode of spoiler country today on the show we have a guy who wears a ton of hats and you might know him by the name of richard starkings richard starkings how are you you were the first letterer that i ever knew about like could name recognize wow that's a compliment thank you i'm fine i'm always known by richard starkings so i'm interested in any nom de plumes you may have heard of but good to meet you Nice to meet you as well. Yeah, yeah. So right when Generation X was coming out, it was the the first comic that I was really, really into and collected every single issue of. And so it, your name for, for a while was synonymous with that. And then when, you know, Elephant Man came out, I was like, holy crap, he, oh, he does other stuff. He's amazing. So I, I try. <laughs> so tell me like, Obviously, you you have you have a little bit of a New Jersey accent. So, so tell me about you know <laughs> where you grew up and how how you ended up in in comics. Well, the short story is, you know, I always wanted to work in comics from a very young age. I was pretty single minded about it. So, after I graduated from college, I ended up moving to London. I had worked for a medical publisher for a short time. Saw a ad in the Guardian newspaper. And it was for an uh, what we call an art assistant, which is really a graphic designer, sort of junior graphic designer at Marvel Comics. And I applied for it. I did not get it, but I was doing lettering on the side, so to speak. And I got lettering assignments on the British Transformers comic. I also was getting work for 2000 AD, home of Judge Dredd. And... Eventually, I visited the Marvel offices often enough that they gave me a steady job. And I worked on Marvel UK reprints such as Spider-Man Comics Weekly, Secret Wars, and eventually worked on the real Ghostbusters, Transformers, Thundercats as an editor, Doctor Who magazine as the editor of the comic strip. And I was at Marvel UK for four years during that time. I got to visit the New York offices of Marvel, decided I wanted to live in America. So I moved to America (laughs) and I worked as a freelance lettering artist. And as, as many people know, I pioneered digital comic book lettering because the deadlines that Marvel US editors gave you were just insane. And, you know, I was, I was never one who could work through the night. A lot of, New York-based Marvel letters were, were working through the night and sleeping in the day in order to meet deadlines. And, and that's never been me. So I sort of put my mind to how can I work in comics and meet these crazy deadlines? 
And in the very early 90s, 90, 1990, 91, I bought my first Macintosh computer, keyboard, mouse, printer. It cost me $4,500 for a Mac 2CI, which was basically <laughs> the kind of computer they had on Apollo 11. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was a tiny bit more powerful. And, you know, slowly picked up a lot of work. In the States, I moved out to California, built a studio, which is the Comic Craft Studio. And that's when you came across Generation X, because that was, that was sort of, that was when we were getting it right. That was when we were using the computer as an enhancement rather than as a, you know, simple tool. You know, it, it, some of our early lettering was pretty crude, but by the time generation x came around I, I really wanted to show what we could do you know with macintosh technology so there were a lot of little innovations that i brought in on generation x which which at that time it led us to work on you know at one point we were doing every single x-men comic book in the late 90s that was sort of the golden era of comic craft you you did speaking of generation x i mean you did so many cool things with those letters they really popped out because you the variety of characters and how they talked in that comic kind of gave you a chance to to go be a little experimental or not maybe not even experimental but to show the characterization and the personality of a character while getting the the point of the comic across yeah, and that was something, you know, I always tried to do. In some ways, you know, I'm always reluctant to do too much with the style of lettering. You know, I, I don't want to get to that point where every character seems to speak with their own lettering. <laughs> that sounds exciting. Yeah, and some writers wanted us to do that. And I, I always feel it's, it's easier to make a, a good script look better than a bad script looked good with just the lettering. So there were a lot of writers who, let's say, were, were not as accomplished as others, and they, <laughs> they wanted to lean on some of the lettering tricks that you could play, and I don't think that always worked out. I, I actually was never a fan of Thor's, the, the font that we created for Thor for the yeah. Avengers. It, it can be distracting. Yeah, I I fought that and I lost. Kurt got his way. And that's one of the things that has stayed with that character evermore. You know, I always feel like he should talk in a way that makes you think he's a Norse god. I don't think the font should tell you that he's he's Norse god. So he, he, there's a very fine line. I, I liked in Generation X that we were able to have certain characters, villains, with a certain style of lettering, especially if they didn't really look very plain human beings. So Generation X, I would say, was more of pushing graphic design to the fore. I was lucky to be working with John Richelle, who's worked with me for 28 years. And he, he was just getting into the swing of working in comics. And, you know, I was pushing him to do more... Um, elaborate title pages. I designed the little footnote captions, which looked like little buttons. And I was trying to play with the graphic elements rather than specifically characters, styles of speaking. 
you know, I'm always resistant to use the word type style because even uh, digital lettering is designed by with with you know a pen. So I always feel like you know if you're gonna have a specific lettering style for a character, firstly let's call it lettering, and secondly let's think really carefully about how how you put that character across. Yeah, yeah. I you were talking about the design aspect earlier, and I, I hate to go back to Generation X again, but oh my gosh, it was just such a good looking book, especially issue number one. Your first introduction to this group as a team. And everything just looks so well. It pops off the page really well. And then when you get to a character like Implate and his his type or his his lettering rather just looks yep. sinister. It, we <laughs> call that grimly fiendish. Uh, I, I actually did that in a a little pad. I, I think I was on an on a an airplane back from San Francisco or somewhere to LA. And I had a ballpoint and a pad, and we needed a style of lettering for Emplet. And I, I do think that he was creepy enough that he deserved a creepy style of lettering. So I literally, you know, got my head into a creepy style and lettered that letter form. I have to be so careful not to use the word font, but it is a font, but I prefer <laughs> You know, I prefer to acknowledge that, you know, they're letter forms that I created with a pen. Yeah. And, and I mean, it it really kind of goes to show you that it's one of those things when people make comics that when it when it works, you you either don't notice it or it, you're just like, oh, my gosh, this this is fantastic or it's. If it doesn't work, it's so distracting that you can't get through it. So you guys are always kind of like walking a tightrope of just making sure that the story gets across. And also, like, it's an art. You guys are truly making some amazing art with... I, I think, you know, I've often said that lettering is almost more of a performance because you are taking a script that someone has written and you're hopefully communicating it in such a way that the intonation can be read, the, the emotion can be read. Obviously, the way it's written is, is first and foremost, but the way you emphasize a word, the way you choose to represent a whisper balloon, and I think it was in Generation X that I decided we would use gray for whispers rather than a broken line, because I never quite understood what a broken line meant. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if something's slightly harder to read because it's gray, then you can, you sort of, you, you have to strain your eyes you way, the way you have to strain your ears. So, you know, there were little subtle things like that. That, that I wanted to introduce. I think that the way you place a balloon can affect the reading order of a comic. And that's, that's the nature of performance that a letterer brings. He is the first to read a comic as a comic. The, the writer has written a script without pictures, 
the artist has drawn a comic strip without words. And as the lettering artist, you are combining the two. So you have to be very careful not to obscure important storytelling, enhance the storytelling, and in, in some ways get out of the way of the storytelling. So it, it, it is a tightrope that you are walking. Sometimes you're pushed onto the tightrope, you know, Steampunk, which was also by Chris Pacello, who drew Generation X. We were asked to go way overboard with the lettering. Oh, wow. And it was appropriate because the artwork was overboard. You know, everything it was a cliffhanger comic. It was steampunk and it was a very rich serving. It was like chocolate cake with a side of chocolate ice cream, chocolate sauce, <laughs> chocolate sprinkles and graham crackers with, you know, melted chocolate on the side. So in that case, steampunk was, to my mind, a little too rich, especially for a comic that, that needed to come out regularly. It took two of us to letter that oh, wow. um, <laughs> side of Temafonti, who still works for DC and I, you know, had to, she had to do a first pass. I did a second pass just to get it to the level of intensity that, that Joe Kelly and Chris Pacello wanted it. So, you know, I think generation X, I, I, you know, it's, it's some of the favorite, my, my favorite work as a lettering artist, because I think that, we got the balance right. The problem was people saw what we did on Generation X and wanted us to do more. And I think it has to be part of the whole, you know. So again, Steampunk, it was okay because everything was yeah. turned up to 11. But in actual fact, and if you look at my lettering in Elephant Men, I'm, I'm a much quieter letterer <laughs> when I'm not, not being told, jazz it up. You know, you know, one of my favorite collaborations is with Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb on the Batman Long Halloween and the uh, Marvel color books, Spider-Man Blue and Hulk Gray. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those are uh, and, you know, what we what we do on those books is very simple. There's, there's, we're not trying to, you know, score the comic. We're not trying to put too much icing on the cake. It doesn't need it. It's a good, strong story. And Jeff's a good storyteller. Tim's a good storyteller. And you don't need to amp anything up with the lettering or the coloring. You know, that's one of those books that reads very easily and is very satisfying. To kind of go back about what you were talking about earlier, I was kind of describing to my wife, who is not a comics fan at all, why you're a badass. (laughs) And it, it came down to like, he saw a need in the 90s, after kind of the image thing happened, a bunch of people were kind of away from Marvel. And you said, oh, crap, I know how to fix this. Technology. And you went in and and made, a, I, I guess, a program or something that allowed for a, an efficient process to, to get a page done. And well... It wasn't, you know, we didn't invent anything. We used the software that was already there. We used Photographer, we used Illustrator, we used Photoshop, and we used, you know, pen and ink to do, to design letter forms, to create new styles of lettering. And it is true that Image blew the doors open for me, but I was ready. I had been working in the States since 1989, and you know, doing, I did a book called Sleepwalker. 
Oh, I love Sleepwalker. And I did that with, you know, pen and ink. And I was working with, you know, one of the masters of comic books, Brett Blevins. And he was being inked by Mike Manley. And, you know, it was just before the image explosion. It was, it was Rob Liefeld was drawing X-Force. Jim Lee was drawing X-Men. Wills was drawing the other X-Men book. And Todd was doing Spider-Man. And it was, everything was just ready because, you know, the relaunches of X-Men and Spider-Man sold like 3 million and 8 million copies, which made the image creators wealthy enough to launch their own companies, company. And when a lot of letterers got stolen from <laughs> Marvel, you know, Tom Ozakowski, who is by far and away, you know, his work is, is my favorite lettering work. Tom's work definitely inspired me to be a comic book letterer. His work on Uncanny X-Men, but specifically Warlock, Jim Stalin's Warlock. I, I wanted to do lettering like that. And I wanted to work on the X-Men. And Todd McFarlane hired Tom away to letter spawn. And suddenly there was an opportunity that hadn't been available for like 15 years. Tom had lettered X-Men <laughs> books for 15 years. So, oh, wow. so I was ready. It's what I wanted to do as a lettering artist working in America. And as I say, you know, not being able to work overnight, I... I lettered an issue, Uncanny X-Men, I think 286. And I lettered half of it. And my brother came to visit me in Santa Monica and I couldn't finish the book. So it was taken away from me and somebody like Rick Parker finished that issue. And I didn't want that to happen again. So that's why I started working with assistants, developing fonts, so that I could effectively work overnight without working overnight, so that I could put my look on a book from page one to 22 and not get tired doing it. That was really the impetus, you know. And yes, you know, all those image books came out. There was suddenly twice as much work, but only the, the same amount of letterers because these days there's a lot of letterers because we sell our fonts and people buy them. And, you know, DC, people working for DC use our fonts and, and other fonts are available, but comic craft fonts are everywhere now. And I've considered myself to be very lucky that, that I still have a studio producing lettering work. But, you know, my intention was never to sit still. You know, I, I wanted to work in the American industry. I wanted to sell fonts because I wanted to self-finance my own comic books. That's, that, that's so that was, badass. <laughs> yeah, that was true 30 years ago. And it's true today that, you know, I, I had learned from English creators how important it was to retain ownership of your work. I'd been friends with John Wagner, the creator of Judge Dredd. I'd interviewed Pat Mills, you know, who created Nemesis and Robusters and Martial Law. I worked on the first hardcover collection of martial law. I worked briefly at Graffiti Designs in Anaheim. And we used to do uh, hardcover collections of trade paperbacks before anybody was doing hardcovers. This is back in the early 90s. Bob Chapman at Graffiti Designs did the first Dark Knight Returns hardcover. He did a hardcover of a book called Moonshadow, Stray Toasters by Bill Sienkiewicz. Oh, such a beautiful book. 
He did Electra, the Electra Assassin series in hardcover that that Frank Miller and Bill Sakevich did, and we did we worked on Martial Law. So, so I had a lot of encouragement from writers who did not control their creative property. So I always wanted to make sure that if I created something, I would own it. And toward that end, you know, we sold fonts and I financed Elephant Men. That's, and that, that's and awesome. Elephant Men's coming up to 20 years old already. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So as, as a person that obviously has a deep passion for comics, why comics? What about comics made you go like, oh, I want to do that? I don't know really. I mean, my brother, who's a good 12 years older than me, was a big collector and he really got me reading Marvel comics. I was reading a comic book in England called Countdown. Countdown, nothing to do with the DC comics countdown of recent years, but Countdown had comic strips featuring all your favorite sci-fi TV shows. At the time, that was Doctor Who, UFO, Thunderbirds, Fireball XL5, and the comic strips were just gorgeous because they came from a tradition of, of art that was, it was painted, it was two pages a week. You know, British comics tend to be weekly. And I loved Doctor Who, I loved UFO, I, but m- most of all, I loved art. I loved drawings, and in some ways, especially with UFO, I preferred the UFO comic strip to the TV show. And it's sort of looking back that I've realized that. When I used to buy record albums, vinyl albums, almost exclusively, I bought albums that had painted art on the covers. So I was attracted to albums by ELO, which had spaceships on the cover. War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne, which had beautiful paintings of the Martian invasion. Armed Forces by Elvis Costello had paintings uh, (laughs) of elephants on the cover. And, you know, there was an artist called, funny enough, John Patrick Byrne. Nothing to do with John Byrne. But he painted covers for Jerry Rafferty and Steeler's Wheel. And I was always attracted to art on books, on record albums, in comics. The, the books that I was attracted to were Frank Herbert's Dune, which had beautiful paintings by Bruce Pennington. I didn't realize at the time when I was a 15-year-old that I always was attracted to Bruce Pennington's art. I just, I, just, I just thought I was attracted to science fiction books. But all the ones I read, I read these, this series of Isaac Asimov books, called Pirates of the Asteroids and what was the other one? Space Ranger. And all the covers were by Bruce Pennington. And then sometimes I would like the artwork of Chris Foss, but always I was attracted to art. So comics was art, right? So that sort of fascination with science fiction led me to the Countdown comic. Countdown folded. There was a comic called Lookin', which was also weekly. It was also based on TV properties, including Space 1999, uh, Battlestar Galactica. It was just, there was a lot of beautiful artwork. The Tomorrow People, which was a TV show that was a little bit like the X-Men in that the the Tomorrow People were, quote unquote, homo superior. They were an evolution of human beings. Wasn't a very good TV show, but (laughs) the the artwork in Looking was phenomenal. It was just gorgeous, gorgeous work. 
So there were artists like Mike Noble, John M. Burns, B-U-R-N-S, and um, John Bolton, who became a, a very well-known artist in America. He did a beautiful cull graphic novel. He has drawn Alien, a very beautiful painterly style in the style of Bernie Wrightson. You know, a lot of incredible British art artists kept me reading comics. But in the mid-70s, Marvel UK sprang into life. And because I had full access to my brother's collection of comics, I thought, well, I'm going to start reading, you know, my own Marvel comics. And that's, that's what I did. I, 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 I always preferred the Fantastic Four. Really? To Spider-Man and the Hulk, because the Fantastic Four is a science fiction comic. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know? And, you know, my favorite character is The Thing. And, you know, I definitely think that, you know, in Elephant Man, the character Hip Flask, if he's inspired by any character in Marvel or DC Comics, it's The Thing. You know, some trapped in a body, you know, he never made, you know, and he, you know, was just very likable. You know, he was a monster, but he was okay with that. And the elephant men are sort of monsters that are either okay it or hate it. You know, they are sort of, somebody described it once as elephant men is like the X-Men meets Blade Runner. I think that's that's quite a good description. I mean, it's not a superhero comic. It's definitely a science fiction comic. But Blade Runner is certainly my favorite movie, Alien being a close second. Um, <laughs> we were we were just talking, the, we have a 10-year-old, and we were just talking about possibly letting her watch the original Blade Runner with us. And we're like, uh, I might need to rewatch it again, but oh my gosh, it's so good. And she's such a, like a nerd for fashion. And we were talking, my wife was talking to her about it and like saying this movie really kind of blew my mind with the, the design and the fashion in it. And my daughter's like, Oh, maybe I do need to watch this movie. <laughs> so the only thing I would say about Blade Runner and, you know, I remember seeing that, you know, in theaters when it was released at that time, you know, Harrison Ford was very much seen as an action hero. You've got to remember that in Blade Runner, he kills two women. One of them he yeah. shoots in the back. The other one he shoots when she's, you know, lying down, freaking out. Oh, I forgot about the, the stripper scene too. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, that. <laughs> um, yeah there's, there's some nudity, but, you know, hey, don't be too American. You know, uh, it's, nudity is okay. Violence nudity is for baths. Okay. And <laughs> the violence in Blade Runner is much more disturbing than the nudity, you know. Okay. So, but, you know, I will tell you that I had a family tradition. I've got three children. They're all in their 20s now. But when they turned 10, I let them watch Alien with me at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> and each one sat next to me because I felt that after, that, you know, Alien now is like some of the 50 sci-fi movies were to me. I was really scared the first time I saw War of the Worlds the George Powell version, because that alien is creepy. Oh, yeah. You know, and that scared the shit out of me when I was, <laughs> you know, 12 or 13. And there were some other movies, you know, Forbidden Planet, This Island Earth. There were a lot of sci-fi movies that 
scared me, but I knew it was science fiction. I knew it wasn't real. So I sat with my kids, you know, hiding their eyes in my chest and watched Alien with them. And and they they have a very healthy, evolved approach to movies. You know, my daughter went on to watch The Shining, 2001. You know, she she developed an interest in movies because I didn't protect her from movies that inspire the imagination. And she's actually graduating with a degree in art. Oh, cool. This summer. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I'd say don't be afraid of showing your daughter certain movies, but be aware that you, you, you should definitely talk to her about the violence towards women in, in both Blade Runner movies. It's quite prominent in, in both movies. And even though the replicants are treated as disposable, you know, as you, you know, the press is a basically a, a prostitute replicant and the, the other woman is a stripper. So those are not good role models <laughs> for women. You know, that's a, that's, there are lots of problematic movies in terms of how women are represented. I'm afraid to say Blade Runner is one of them. It's still beautiful. It's still my favorite movie. It's got the best soundtrack of any oh movie. Oh my gosh. Was that Tangerine Dream or was that? No, it's Vangelis. Tangerine Vangelis. Dream yes. did Legend. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but Vangelis, whose work you should definitely check out. Everything he's recorded is beautiful. Check out his album Themes or Voices. You know, his he was a, a founding member of the band Yes. Okay. Uh, and I yes, had, yes had incredible cover art by Roger <laughs> Dean. Roger Dean is a fantasy illustrator. He was associated with Elric, Michael Moorcock's character, but he did most of the Yes album covers in the 70s. Everything's interconnected. But yeah, no, I was much more of an Alien and Blade Runner fan than Star Wars. And, and that's good because it's much cheaper to buy Alien and Blade Runner toys than to buy <laughs> Star Wars toys. So... I, I recently got to watch Alien with my wife for the first time for for her. Wow! And during the chestburster scene, I had to kind of like sit back and instead of watching the movie, I was watching her. Mm-hmm. It is so much fun to watch somebody see that for the first time. I bet. Yeah. It it it's it goes from like zero to a hundred like. In no time. Well, what, one of the things people forget about Alien, as opposed to Aliens... Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. A- Alien is a thriller. It's a haunted house movie set in space, whereas Aliens is an action movie. You know, they're, they're very different. Same species, different style of movie making. So, you know, a lot of Alien... And, and I remember at the time that John Hurt was the only name in the cast. So when I started watching Alien, I was like, okay, John Hurt's the, the survivor. I know he's going to live. <laughs> and then, of course, boom, he's dead. He's the first one to die. So, you know, when that was released, it, it, it upturned a lot of your expectations straight away. You did, we had not seen a woman as the action hero at the end. She is the... She makes all the right decisions. She, she's the wear a mask, stay indoors. Yeah. Right? You know, she's <laughs> like, we can't risk contamination of the crew. You know, she's the smartest character 
on the spaceship. And and that in that way, you know, that's you see, Alien is a much better, uh, much better female role models, or at least Ripley is a great female role model. And and Ripley sort of gave way to Sarah Connor in Terminator Two, Ripley in Aliens, and you know. Uh, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, you know, that there was a alien kind of pushed along the idea that an action hero could be female. Whereas Blade Runner, even the sequel, the women are secondary. The women are playthings. So again, Blade Runner is beautiful. I love it. I love Blade Runner 2049 as well. You've just got to, you've just got to see it through careful eyes let's put it that way oh yeah yeah so so to, to kind of go back a- around to your i'm guessing a lot of this stuff is a big inspiration for you what's when you are not writing when you're not lettering when you're not doing the act of creating is is that something that you you kind of return to like cinema well i think you know, we live in a much more visually literate world. I actually return to comics because, really? the you know, movies and TV are way too accessible today. You know, you do not have to go to the movies anymore. You can have a big screen TV, turn the lights off, and you've got a movie experience in your home. There's a lot of incredible storytelling going on in TV. So... The thing that I want to put into my comic books is is the enjoyment I got out of them. And I think some comics are too slow these days. Some comics have abandoned the vocabulary of comic books. I love cover lettering. I love deceptive covers, <laughs> covers that promise something that's not going on inside. I love title pages. I love sound effects. I love thought balloons. I love footnotes, captions. I love all the things that were unique and are unique to comic books. So I try to put those into my comic books. I put them into Elephant Men, The Beef. The Beef was so many, every lettering trick I've ever learned (laughs) put into The Beef. And that is one of my uh, proudest achievements. I wrote a five-issue series, Suitable for Vegetarians. It's about the beef industry, and it's about a guy that turns into beef. Very much inspired by the Hulk, but not the Hulk. You know, and with Elephant Men, you know, we're currently actually, I reacquired my the digital rights to Elephant Men. So Comic Craft is now publishing the Elephant Men library on Comixology. It's, it's you know, Elephant Men is still ongoing, on Comixology Originals, we're in our fourth, we're on our fourth season of Elephant Men with Comixology Originals. We just finished season three a couple of months ago. We're also in our fourth season of Ask for Mercy, which is a fantasy horror monster comic that I create with a young British artist called Abigail Jill Harding. Oh, she's um, fantastic. Yeah, she is amazing. And we're actually, we, we're just working on a, it's sort of a one shot, but it's a prologue to season four and it's set in the forest and we're trying to do our spookiest forest horror story. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, but, you know, I, I don't take the titles 
of individual issues out of the of the collections. I think a lot of Marvel and DC comics now they take out the title pages, but to me that's part of the oh yeah the uniqueness of comic books. So you know when I say I return to comic books, I'm currently rereading Conan the Barbarian in the Marvel Omnibus, and I'm just you know I just marvel literally you know at how the story moves at such a great pace you know we always say that character is action and so many marvel comics in the 60s and 70s those characters were acting all the time they were doing something all the time i i read some modern comic books and there's a lot of sitting around and talking you know because when you watch too much tv you think storytelling is sitting around talking while on TV, they sit around talking because they don't have the budget yeah. <laughs> that the MCU has, you know, and even the, you know, even WandaVision, there was a lot of action. There was a lot of movement, even when they were stuck in the sitcom episodes, there was, there was always something going on. And if you look back at what Stan and Jack did on Fantastic Four or what Ditko or Ramita did on Spider-Man, there was always something going on and there's always a lot of hand acting. There's always a lot of, sh- of great shortcut storytelling to move you along. You know, somebody does not take two pages to cross the room. And I, I, I see a lot of superheroes with their arms folded on the covers of Marvel and DC comics these days. And it's boring. and there's no cover lettering to tell you what might be happening inside you know and i always learned at marvel uk that that you know the most important thing that you have the 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 most useful tool in your box is your cover art because your cover can get someone to pick up your comic like you know if you know doc ock is back right then you're going to pick it up because wait dr octopus is in jail how can he be back? You know, so I like to use cover lettering. I like to use all the gimmicks, all the things that made me want to read comics. And when you look at manga, which seems to have a stronger appeal with younger readers, they do that too. They, they reach out to the reader. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, there's, they're not afraid of crazy sound effects. You know, they're not afraid of little icons in balloons. You know, there's, they're much more playful. And I think mainstream American comics have lost some of their playfulness. I'm sure there are a lot of comics out there that haven't. But, but we're a little too eager to have an older readership. I like to hit the 15-year-old readership, which I think that's when I was really enjoying comics. I started reading comics very young when I was eight or nine. But I was really... I was really, really enjoying them when I was in my mid-teens. And I, I think that's, that's the audience to go for. And I think Alien is, you know, for, for Elephant Men, I'm, I'm trying to get the teenager that would have gone to see Alien, right? Because it's yeah. slightly intellectual, but it's a B-movie. It doesn't pretend, <laughs> you know. There's a, there's a lot of horror tropes in that movie, you know, the... The girl undresses at the end. That always happens in a horror movie. That makes it a B-movie. We might want it to be, you know, regarded, you know, with up there with Gone with the Wind. But it's not. It's Alien. (laughs) (laughs) You know, 
it's it's not a work of art it's a work of commerce and it's a work of energy and enthusiasm and industrial design it's you know and, and that's what i i always try to put into my comics you know my 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 goal with ask for mercy which is a monster comic is that there's a new monster every five pages because growing up in england when you read a comic maybe you would have five pages of story a week so if you only have five pages a week you better have something going on in those five pages and i think that's why a lot of british writers were very popular when they moved from british comics to american comics because they knew they had to keep the beat keep it moving you know alan moore's scripts are very tightly packed john wagner you know john wagner's to me 2000 ad was to british comic book readers what marvel in the 60s was to american comic book readers 2080 was packed with ideas packed oh, with action there's a, a local comic shop down the road from me that gets like old issues of 2080 and every time i go in there i just grab a handful of them because they're so good yeah and i mean i guess the parallel would would be heavy metal but i mean even that i mean they're there's still like a quite a bit of difference between the two. Um, well, the difference, the big difference between Heavy Metal and 2000 AD is that 2000 AD delivers characters that return every week. Yeah. Heavy, yeah. heavy Metal was short stories. Heavy Metal was, was an adult version of the Twilight Zone, right? You know, there was always nudity in Heavy Metal. 2000 AD was, again, it was aimed at that. 15 to 16 year old readership that wanted science fiction, but they also wanted a rough, tough lawman or a <laughs> Western set in space, which is what Strontium Dog is, or a war story set in space, which is Rogue Trooper, or Ace Trucking, which is a comedy about scrap metal collectors, you know, or Dion Quinch, which is an, like a sitcom. You know, it was like The Young Ones, which is a British... Oh, I've seen, yeah. They used to play it on MTV when I was a kid. Yeah, so Dion Quinch was Alan Moore's sort of Young Ones. And I think that, you know, what I also, you know, I, I created Elephant Men, you know, having read 2000 AD for years. So it, Elephant Men would fit into 2000 AD because there's a rec recurring characters. It's spread over a number of years there's 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 development of the characters characters live characters die you know and i think that the, there's that episodic quality that heavy metal didn't deliver heavy metal might have some recurring artists but not necessarily recurring characters so heavy metal was more aimed at it was much trippier it was much more for pot smokers Oh, yeah. as, opposed, as opposed to people <laughs> buying chewing, you know, at the corner store. And I think 2000 AD really, it bridged the gap between American comics and European comics. And I think Dave Gibbons has always struck me as being the perfect 2000 AD artist because he could work in Europe, he could work in England, or he could work in America. He absorbed British comics, he absorbed European comics for, like Mobius, he absorbed American comics and, and can, can, can work in each market. So, you know, 
2000 AD was was the perfect launch pad for creators like Dave. And of course, Dave is probably the most successful British artist that worked in the American market because of Watchmen. Oh, yeah. You know, but the art in 2000 AD, again, was what pulled me in. You know, Brian Bolland, Kevin O'Neill, Mick McMahon, who was just a giant in British comics at that time. But the stories were great. The stories... Artwork will bring you in, but the story makes you stay, you know. So that's, that's what I've sought in Elephant Men is an ongoing series with characters that, don't, that have a reason to keep getting involved in stories. That's, that's awesome. When you're writing, I always like to ask this. I'm just out of curiosity. Do you listen to music or have the TV on or anything like that? Or is it just, no, Richard is is writing right now and he needs complete silence? I'm often writing in my head and get interrupted. And, and that's when I know I've been <laughs> writing. But I, I work in, you know, I'm not someone that can just sit down and and type all day. So I will go for a long walk. I'll go and have breakfast by myself somewhere. I'll, I'll take a, a moleskin exercise book with me. You know, it's just, just a moleskin, pl- blank pages because I draw. I often draw pages before I write them. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I do little thumbnails. With Elephant Men, I've always thumbnailed pretty much the whole book and sent it to Axel. Axel's in uh, Guadalajara, Mexico, and he speaks uh, fluent English, but I like to give him the stage directions as thumbnails. Whereas with Abigail, I tend to talk about what's going on in the book. Then I write her a script because she, she has a... She, she, her imagination is so vast. I wouldn't dare <laughs> um, try to give a thumbnail. Sometimes I'll help her break down a sequence, but with Elephant Man, I'm so closely involved with it. And Axel is not the first artist I've worked with. So I'm very much more controlling, quite honestly, with Elephant Men because I have the scene in my head, you know. So I don't sit down and write. I do listen to music. I listen to the Blade Runner soundtrack i listen to instrumental music exclusively when i write i can't hear lyrics i can't listen to a radio show when i'm writing and i tend to work when i when i actually sit down and write it's almost always between 12 and 4 in the afternoon i don't know why but i don't do second drafts that's one of the problems of working for yourself there's no one to tell you to rewrite something but that's usually because i've spent a week thinking about it and if i think about a story and it doesn't feel right in my head i just don't write that down but you, you, know. you also used to be an editor, though, so you know when to yes. when to cut the fat and yeah, get um, on with the story. I, you're very generous, Casey. I wish that was true. I could go back <laughs> through some of the earlier issues of Elephant Man and, and make some tweaks. But I have, I feel, got more confident. I often start a story not knowing how it's going to end. You know, if you've read Stephen King's book on writing, he was the one that gave me the confidence not to necessarily know what the ending was of a story arc. He, he often starts, he almost always starts a story not knowing how it's going to end. Whereas some of my other, you know, writing heroes like Stephen Moffat, who worked on Sherlock and Doctor Who, he, he told me that he knows his ending before he starts. Russell T. Davis, and he was the guy that relaunched Doctor Who in his book, 
a writer's tale, he juggles. He throws things in, in the air, not knowing how he's going to catch them. And, and I, I work that way. I throw a lot of things in the air. I, I'm pretty confident now I can catch them. On the recent Ask for Mercy, we sort of ended season three on a sort of cliffhanger because the world has been destroyed. <laughs> that, yeah, that uh, might kind of close yeah. things. <laughs> and, and I thought I was going to deal with that one, but it's but actually season four is the second part of that story. So it's worked out well for us. But But I was very satisfied with the ending, even though it was a cliffhanger. So you sort of learn okay, well, there's a lot more story to tell. You learn about your characters. Sometimes I was really surprised how much information you get back from people who really read your book. You know, I've had friends and fans tell me about my characters and it's important to take note about what people respond to. So, you know, there's a character in Elephant Man called Mickey who wasn't going to be in it for long, and she's been around a long time now because people really respond to her. And a friend of mine, whose name is Nova, dressed up as her and came to oh wow uh, the show. And it's got to be gratifying. Yeah, no, I've had there's a there's half a dozen characters that have inspired people to do cosplay. Uh, Sahara, I've had three Saharas, and Sahara is very good looking and dressed in very loose clothing. So I have to be very careful about you. Have to be very careful about. <laughs> you know, the clothing your characters have. But clearly, you know, when somebody dresses up as one of your characters, it's because they respond to something. And and one thing I didn't realize, when Sahara was on the cover of one of the early issues, it's not often you see, at at that time, you know, 12, no, 15 years ago, black female characters were not featured on the cover of American comic books alone. Like, you know, there's... There's a picture of Sahara working through the desert. And I was just amazed how many young black women stopped and bought it just, just for that. Just because they'd never seen a, a black female on the cover of an American comic book so prominently before. And that's very gratifying because I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't put her on the cover in order, you know, to get more sales. She's a, she's one of the key characters in the series. So you know, you, you get a lot of positive response. You get a lot of input and feedback, and and it all goes back into the story. And you may may very well have brought these people that that responded to Sahara into comics and found yes, something. Yeah, that's oh. true too. Yeah. No, I've had a lot. Of, I've had a lot of people who've told me when Elephant Man came out, there weren't many science fiction comic books at Image. I was one of the first, as opposed to superhero or horror. There have been more since, you know, Saga and Black Science, a very successful science fiction comics at Image. But there were people who told me that they didn't like superheroes, but they liked Elephant Men because it was science fiction and it brought them into comics or brought them back into comics. So that again is very flattering and i i do feel you know that i found my audience with elephant men that that's awesome i i really respect just your tenacity and in, in keeping at it and you going places that other people really haven't with comics and, and kind of exploring new ways to do the form when you first started in comics was there anyone that kind of 
uh, took you under their wing? I, I wish there was. I was very lucky, you know, the lettering artists that were working at Marvel weren't necessarily threatened by me at the time. And I'm thinking of Annie Parkhouse and Steve Craddock, who was lettering Captain Britain. He was a particularly excellent lettering artist who stopped lettering. In fact, he worked in my local hardware store. I lived in Reading in England. Yeah. And I, ra- I ran into him in the hardware store and he had found it too stressful to work as a lettering artist because there's not enough, there wasn't enough work and you had to turn it in overnight. Right. But, but he was really encouraging Tom frame at 2000 AD was really encouraging the editors at 2000 AD, Steve McManus and his assistant, Simon Geller and the art director at 2000 AD, Robin Smith were great. They were very welcoming. They were fun people they, they, you know, we used to play softball um, against 2000 AD. I was the captain of Marvel UK and John Wagner was the captain of 2000 AD and they always thrashed us. Uh, <laughs> we didn't really know what they were doing, but John Wagner had grown up in America and, and, and played Little League. So, you know, I, Alan Davis, I worked with Alan Davis. He was very helpful. Paul Neary, I worked on this Batman detective series they worked on when I was in England. So I picked up, I always wanted to read about how to make comics. So I read the comics journal. I read Amazing Heroes. I read a magazine called BEM, Bemusing Magazine, which was a British fanzine. And I've always read books about making comics. I've always been interested in behind the scenes. No, there wasn't a sort of mentor as such, Ian Rimmer was the editor I worked with originally at Marvel. He was, a, he was a good editor. I learned from him. But in fact, when Tom DeFalco was posted to Marvel UK for two months, he was pretty great. Tom DeFalco is a really uh, nice human being and definitely gave us some workshops about how Marvel US developed stories. So, I, you know, I was lucky to meet people like Tom Shooter came over for a week. Archie Goodwin. Archie Goodwin made it possible for me to publish the first Epic UK comic, also the last Epic UK comic. That was the Sleaze Brothers. Um, I've never heard a bad word said about Archie, by the way. He no, seems like a, a gem of a human being. Yeah, he was, he was the nicest uh, human being in comics. Really helped us out. So I encountered, you know, I sought people out. I definitely, you know... When there was an opportunity to go to lunch with Shooter, I went to lunch with Shooter. You know, oh. you know, I, I, I've been lucky to work with Brian Bolland. Dave Gibbons was always very uh, generous with his encouragement and, and advice. And then, then I moved to America and worked with Bob Chapman at Graffiti Designs. Learned a lot there. Learned about merchandising. Learned about you know book plates and numbering. I numbered a lot of hardcover books, but I, you know, so, you know, I wanted to make comics, you know, and a lot of people mistook me for a lettering artist and I did a good job of pretending to be a lettering artist for a long time. And I'm glad that I have that skill because when I letter my own comic book, I'm also rewriting it, you know, so. Oh, you rewrite it on the fly as you go. Yeah. I, I write much more of a full script now than I used to because sometimes I would forget what I was intending to write. <laughs> so I've learned 
to sort of let the characters talk on paper so that I have a basic outline of the dialogue. I don't, I don't think I work traditionally. I think other writers work much more traditionally than I do. I, I, I am, my intention is always to make a comic not necessarily to write it. And all the artists that have worked with me would probably concur because sometimes I'll say, I know what the splash page is at the end of this issue. Draw that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, I I sometimes work with a scene or a splash page, but I rarely change my mind. I, I am confident once I start of the direction the story is going in. And I think you're right in that my skills as an editor come into play. I, I you know, again, I read, I try to read a comic every day. I, last week I read November, the four graphic novels by Matt Fraction and Elsa Chartierier. And that was great. I couldn't do anything like that. I don't think, you know, but I wouldn't want to either. I like to read a crime comic. I don't want to write one. When when I came up with the beef with my co-writer, Tyler Shaneline, I was like, oh, this is going to be really wacky, you know, and, and I had no idea where it was going. Tyler worked on it most, he worked on some of the dialogue and he worked on, uh, he co-plotted the first issue with me, but then I just went off on my own in this strange direction and learned a lot about dairy cows and mass production of beef. And if I hadn't been a vegetarian when I started, I would have been by the end. Were you inspired by Upton Sinclair's work in the jungle? Nope, never heard of it. Really? Yeah. Upton Sinclair was a, he was what they call now a yellow journalist during like the turn of the century. And he wrote a book called The Jungle, which at the time, I think his intent was like, socialism is great. And what happened instead was people went, holy shit, they let people get away with that in the meat industry? And that's when they started the, like, controlling what goes into food. (laughs) I think that's what kind of spearheaded people's argument to form the FDA. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, the state of the country right now is not the best state we could be in. Part of the reason I became a vegetarian was I read a book called Animal Ethics, and I read about the mistreatment of animals in slaughterhouses, in meat processing plants and chicken processing plants. And I was like, I don't think I want to eat things that have basically been tortured their entire lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, what, you know if we are what we eat, then no wonder there's so much anxiety. No wonder one in two people will get cancer, you know, because we don't treat the food that we eat with the respect it deserves, you know. So I've been vegetarian almost 20 years now, long before I, I wrote the beef. But the beef was very much a consequence of studying how animals are treated for elephant men. You know, a lot of my research in elephant men, you know, there's a lot more hybridization of animals going on than you might be comfortable with. There are uh, pig embryos that have been fertilized with human DNA that, that were allowed to gestate for a month. There are endangered animals being brought back from extinction or, you know, extinct animals. There's a lot going on. George W. Bush in his... his you don't have to be nice. <laughs> no, no. He, he, I, I put his, his speech, one of his very first... What's the speech? Say to the nation, you know. Speeches. Oh, his State of the Union speech. State of the Union, yeah. 
he said that he wanted to introduce laws to stop the hybridization of animals with humans. Oh, and okay. I, I was like, wait, what? You know, so I, <laughs> I had that as a quote in the first issue of Elephant Man because I was like, that's just, that's a gift. Yeah. You know, because if he's put that in his State of the Union address, then it's happening. You don't, you don't address something that's not happening. You know, you put it right out there because it is happening. So, you know, the more I looked into the science behind human-animal hybrids, the more frightening it is. You know, I mean, you know, we, we've already hybridized tomatoes with chickens. You know, there's, there's so much gene splicing going on in order to preserve food better that it's very difficult to find pure foods anymore because there's so much messing around with the DNA, the genetic content of food. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's getting harder and harder to eat ethically. Very hard, yes. yeah. Although there is, you know, I mean, the word vegan is now very well known. You know, soy milk is much more common in America. Almond milk, oat milk we drink. There are more vegan restaurants. There are vegan burgers, even at Burger King. Yeah, I think they, yeah. I think they sell the Impossible Burger, which is freaking delicious. Yes, it um, is. You know, so there's lots that, you know, slowly society changes when young people want things to change. So there's always hope for the world because the old guard always loses control. You know, so right now the old guard is hanging on a little bit too tightly and younger people are coming up and questioning the system that they've been, you know, driving into our lives for way too long. So I'm hopeful. Even in these bleak times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we're, you know, hopefully the sun is starting to come out because, oh, my gosh, it's been pretty crazy. Well, you're in you're in Alabama, right? Yes, yes. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> yeah, anytime you hear my state in the news generally is nothing good, especially in, in regards to our wonderful politicians we have. How, how did you end up in the American South, of all places? My wife, I met my wife in Long Beach five years ago. She suckered uh, you into coming. <laughs> well, we were actually looking to buy a house in Long Beach, and the prices were just going through the roof. So we happened to come to Atlanta. We went to a wedding in Atlanta and came to visit Chattanooga because my wife's father and her sisters, her three sisters live here. Yeah. So we came to visit and I just happened to ask her dad how much the house cost. And he lives in a lovely neighborhood in, in the woods and you know, his house was only about 300,000 and we were looking at places, we were looking at two bedroom bungalows for 700,000. So I just said, doesn't matter where I work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, is such a nice place. Yeah. I lived half my life in Los Angeles and I, I do enjoy Los Angeles. I've got lots of good friends there. It is very expensive. It's very transient. People move in and out all the time. It's very stressful city to live in. Traffic is exceptionally stressful. I didn't realize how stressful until I didn't have to drive in that traffic anymore. So I came to Chattanooga and it's, Chattanooga is actually a kind of little progressive bubble 
on it is. in yes. Tennessee. It's very picturesque. We have a beautiful Tennessee River running through town, a beautiful pedestrian bridge, the longest in, in America. We have art museum. We have terrific comic book store, a uh, five-minute drive from my house called Infinity Flux with wonderful owners, Jason and Megan, and I've become friends with them very quickly, actually. They have a comics co-op, Chattanooga Comics Co-op, which still meets. Actually, we meet on Zoom every two weeks. An art community. There's a lot of young people moving here. It's very lively, small city. So I've definitely relaxed a lot more here. There's some money left at the end of the month, which, you know, in Los Angeles, there's always too much month left at the end of the money. So we were ready to move out here. My my wife had lived in California 20 years. I'd lived there nearly 28 years. And we haven't really looked back. I mean, it is a little Republican. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the South. And when I say a little, you know what I mean. But, you know, California has its red neighborhoods too you know I mean, they had more voters for trump than any other state in the nation just because yeah. they're so damn big yep california yep. so it's not like california is 90 percent blue it's 55 percent blue and tennessee is 55 percent red so it doesn't matter where you go you can encounter bigotry you know anywhere i mean you know there was an attack on an asian woman in san francisco yesterday you know so it doesn't matter what where you live, you know, we've really got to sort of unite in our hearts. And I actually do find people in the South, you know, really warm and welcoming, you know, Southern hospitality is real. You know, a lot of having lived in New York and LA, you know, I heard a lot of, you know, trailer trash stories about Tennessee and Georgia. And, but again, that, that exists in California too. It's just, you don't see it. If you yeah. live in LA, LA is not California. It is how it's portrayed in the, the popular media too. Yes, exactly. And, and I've, I've encountered that coming from England. You know, a lot of people think that England is just like Harry Potter or Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> that, you know, I, that I used to walk the smog laden streets of London and that I went to a school where I had to wear a uniform, which I did. No. <laughs> but, you know, the, but I caught some steam train in order to go to school. It's not like that. It's just like America. It's just that we have a better sense of humor and better cups of tea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, is there anything you want to, to, to talk about before we, before we go ahead and land this plane? Not at all. You know, I think you've covered everything. You know, Elephant Men is ongoing. I encourage everybody to check it out on Comixology. You know, if you have Amazon Prime account, you can read all Comicsology originals for free if you have Amazon Prime. So you can read three seasons of Elephant Men 2261. You can read all of Ask for Mercy for free. So, and that's, you know, we've already done 30, wait, 15 plus 18, 33 issues of the two books for Comicsology originals. And we've got five more issues of Elephant Men to come, six more issues of Ask for Mercy. And again, you know, my entire, the entire Elephant Men digital catalog can be found on Comixology under the Comic Craft section of, you know, Amazon. So 
I encourage everybody to check it out. I do think that print on demand and, and digital comics is the future of comics. I think we're in a very, we're evolving, you know, the way people read comics, the way they support comics through things like Kickstarter is giving a lot more power to creators. I just um, did my first Kickstarter the other day. Congratulations. I did last yeah. Friday. So well done. Thank Not you. Not an easy me. task, you know, so it's much, it's much easier to own what you create these days. There's, there's much more support available for comic books. There's much more awareness of comic books. Amazon makes a fortune selling comic books. I encourage you to support your local comic book store. Always support brick and mortar. Always go to your local comic book store every week. And if you're in Chattanooga, I highly recommend Infinity Flux on Hicks and Pike. So, you know, there's, there's, we're, we're, there's an embarrassment of treasures in comics right now. And I'm really enjoying making comics. I hope people pick them up if they see them in the store. Again, one of my proudest achievements is the beef. It's in trade paperback from Image. If you see it, I guarantee you'll enjoy it. It's, it's very bloody. It's very funny. <laughs> and it has Gandhi in it. <laughs> well, that, that's, I mean, that hits all of my, my selling points for a comic. It if, it didn't have, if it didn't have Gandhi in it, it might have to pass. There you go. <laughs> Richard Starkings, thank you so much for coming on, man. Casey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Take it easy. And I'm so shocked anytime I talk to somebody from the South and or, or that lives in the South. I'm, I'm so glad that you found it to be the place that it can be. Yes. So. <laughs> Very welcoming. Yeah. A beautiful. South oh, beautiful. yes. Yes. Richard, thanks again, man. Thanks, Casey. Take it easy, brother. Stay safe. Stay safe. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com we have a plethora plethora is such a it's such a snobbish word i like it though <laughs> it's, it's a good word <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers and oh my god are you a lover of comic books like we are and then there's so many. so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds in the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. Episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it obviously on all the socials, but if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> 
There you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And...